Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. We are recording this edition of Colorado Leadership Stories in the community room of KRCC, the Southern Colorado Office of Colorado Public Radio in Colorado Springs. We have our first ever live studio audience and we'll be able to take questions toward the end of our discussion. Today, we're going to talk about an industry, coal, that has been central to our state's economy since before Colorado reached statehood. To provide background, I thought I'd share some history. Coal mining commenced in Colorado in the late 1850s, bringing a new source of revenue, a need for innovation, and a push for further rail expansion to the state. For generations of Coloradans, it has heated homes, powered railways, and generated most of our electricity. Along the way, it built fortunes and helped to define communities, rural, urban, and suburban. And by the 1920s, Colorado boasted more than 230 operating coal mines, making it a major state employer and industry. But now, more than a century later, the use of coal to produce electricity has declined greatly, and the six remaining power plants in Colorado are all expected to close or convert to renewable energy by 2031. Meanwhile, the plan for the seven remaining coal mines is less clear, though unspoken change is clearly on the horizon. What is next for the roughly 2,000 employees of Colorado's coal industry is uncertain, but recent action by the state has initiated an effort to avoid a boom-and-bust economic cycle. In 2019, the Colorado General Assembly passed and Governor Jared Polis signed House Bill 1314, creating the Office of Just Transition and making just transition for these workers and communities a state priority. We are here today to talk about how that just transition is happening from the state's perspective and from the perspective of two community leaders, all of whom are working collaboratively and independently to support their organizations and communities, all dealing with the challenge that is a great coal transition. Joining me today are Wade Buchanan, a Betcher Scholar alum who directs Colorado's Office of Just Transition. Our other two guests are Matthew Mendisco, the town manager of Hayden, and Jennifer Holloway, the executive director of the Craig Chamber of Commerce. Both Matthew and Jennifer are alums of Betcher's Doers and Difference Makers Fellowship Program, which works with community leaders from across the state and helps to amplify their impact as connectors in the state's leadership ecosystem. The communities they both call home and help lead are both in Northwest Colorado, the town of Hayden in Route County, and the town of Craig in Moffat County. Hayden is home to Hayden Station, which is a coal-fueled electrical power plant. And Craig is home to the Trapper Mine, which is one of Colorado's seven remaining mines in operation. The era of coal in Colorado appears to be ending, and that poses serious challenges to communities of Craig and Hayden, and families that have relied on coal for generations, for employment, as an industry, and as a tax base. So to start us off, Wade, we will start with you. Wade, will you tell us some history of the coal industry in Colorado, how big its footprint is, how and why this issue is so prevalent right now in communities across the state? Sure. Well, thank you. And and first, let me thank uh, Betcher Foundation for 
for inviting us here today to talk about this important issue in KRCC. I graduated Colorado College, and I remember the old days when KRCC was was in a uh, in a very different building than this. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, Katie Cole has been a part of Colorado's history since before statehood, and it really it started in north of Denver. Kind of most folks. And it wouldn't realize this, but most of the early, much of the early coal mining was done actually in or around Boulder County. And towns of Louisville and Lafayette were, were coal mining towns. Uh, that was how they were founded. There was a mine in, uh, in Marshall, just south of Boulder. Something I've lear- I learned um, later in life uh, is that, you know, you, you, coal mines can catch fire. Abandoned coal mines can catch fire. And those fires burn underground for a very long time. And uh, the Marshall mine has been burning for a number of decades. And when we had the Marshall fire about a year and a half ago now, one of the early bits of speculation was that it was sparked by that coal mine, um, which has been closed for well over 50, 60 years, I think. So over the years, we've had probably 1,700 coal mines in Colorado over the last 160 years. They started north of Denver. They worked south with the railroad, and the and uh, um, the history is really quite rich. CF&I uh, was the Colorado Fuel and Iron was the uh, customer of of much of the coal that was that was dug in southern Colorado. Those of you who know the name Ludlow. It's a, a very dark time in our state history. The labor movement kind of cut its teeth in Colorado on, on coal. Um, and it, along with the railway, railroads, worked their way up into the, the mountains around the turn of the, the 19th through the 20th century. They've been mining coal for quite a while in, the, in northwest Colorado. And uh, right now there's, um, I believe, two power plants and four coal mines in that three-county area route, Rio Blanco and Moffa County. By 1950, the usage of coal in the country was kind of equal parts transportation, uh, home and, and home heating and, and commercial heating, uh, industrial uses, um, steel, uh, and electric generation. But today, it's, it's almost entirely electric generation, all those other uses, with the exception of some industrial uses, really diminished significantly. Uh, we hit our peak of coal production in Colorado in about 2004, 2005. And, and that's a bit of surprising folks, but you think about what was happening with what was often termed as dirtier coal back east uh, in the low sulfur coal of the western mines. Um, as they were transitioning, uh, a lot of the customers came this way. Wyoming had quite a boom. Colorado, quite a boom. We, we dug about 40 million tons of coal in 2004 in Colorado, uh, 12 mines and about 2,000 miners. Then today we're down to around 12,000 tons of coal, so uh, less than a third of the production. We have seven mines open right now and uh, about a little less than 1,000 miners. So we're on we, this trend away from coal has been happening now for a little while. And, um, and so we're here with a few pockets of coal use 
and coal mining left in the state, and we're here to talk about what the next decade or so looks like. Thanks, Wade. Um, talk about just transition and talk about that work that your office is, including what your current priorities are. Well, so just transitions, not the name I would have chosen. <laughs> just just we, transition. If you, those on the radio will not see us using the air, uh, air quote marks. It doesn't really explain itself very well, does it? Uh, but uh, it's the name we were given. Uh, the purpose of uh, the Office of Just Transition is to partner with the communities that are uh, facing um, loss of coal jobs, loss of property tax from coal and power plants over the next decade or so, and to partner also with the workers who are facing that disruption. You know, we've had a lot of transitions in our in our economic life um, when we move from one industry to another, and we tend to the way we tend to handle that is just look forward at what the what it's creating, the jobs and the opportunities and the and the wealth it's creating in the new industries. And we don't look back at who's being left behind. And we have a lot of very charming um, ghost towns in Colorado as, as a result. And, uh, I, you know, I like hiking up to a ghost town as much as the next person, but I think we have enough of them. And so uh, the, the Office of Just Transition was created. I'm told it's the first, we know it was the first in this country. Several other states have followed suit since. Uh, someone suggested it's one, it's one of the first in the in the world to um, to have an office like this, and we were created to see if we could do that tra- this transition differently. And so um, our job is to think about the property tax that it's being lost in communities, stuff that Matt works with to try to create prosperity in his community and a good place to live. So that involves replacing the commercial value that's lost when a power plant closes or a mine closes. This is no small task. Power plants, and I'll use Craig, even though Matt likes me, would prefer I use the Hayden number, but the, the, the Craig power plant and the two mines in Moffat County pay almost 50% of the property taxes paid in the county by all taxpaying entities, including residents. So think about the schools, Think about the fire district, think about the libraries, think about the college, think about the hospitals, think about anything you can think about that's a public asset that relies on, on tax a, a, a property tax for uh, its support, and you start to understand the challenge these communities face. And so it's a very simple equation. It's not a simple task, but it's a very simple equation. We have to replace that property tax. We have to replace that commercial value. We have to replace the jobs. These are very good jobs. These are some of the best-paying jobs. And we have to do it in a way that diversifies the economies so that there's not an overdependence on one employer, again, or one sector, again, which is really the problem in the first place. We think of this as an energy problem, but it's an overdependence problem. And finally, we have to do it in a way that centers our work on what the communities actually want and what the act- what the workers actually want. There's a lot of us that speculate about what would be what it, it would be good to replace coal with, but truly really the folks who live in the communities and work in the communities and want to raise their families in the communities that need to have the say in that. And we need to show up humbly uh, in that conversation and try to be a partner in in making reality of it. So that's what our office aspires to do. Uh, we're at the early stages. Most of the closures still. Uh, are three or four years away. 
So we have a little time to try to get it right, and that's what we're busy doing. Wonderful. Well, let's hear from the folks that are living in those communities. So turning to Jennifer and Matthew, and Jennifer, we'll start with you. Talk about what it means to be a coal-impacted community and all those layers and complexities about it, maybe those that may be well-known or obvious and those lesser-known. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Betra Foundation, for all the support that you have given our community. I also appreciate all the work that Just Transition is doing So, I mean, right off the bat, like Wade mentioned, we're looking at a significant tax deficit. So our county is facing a lot of uncertainty with how we can run all of our county government. So that right off the bat is like an obvious issue, as well as all of the workers that are at the plant that have, you know, kind of, well, actually relying on this for their livelihood, their retirement, their family, so if you look at the economic side of it, it's extremely impactful for the whole, whole community. The other part is really more of an identity and an identity um, crisis. So I did grow up in the Yampa Valley. Throughout the valley, I went to middle school in Hayden, graduated high school in Craig. Um, my great-grandfather was a miner in the Mount Harris Mines. My other great-grandfather was a rancher in the, in the valley. So those perspectives are very much ingrained into our culture and our identity and our pride and what we do to, to be impactful citizens, right? So our community has been very much ingrained into that culture and very happy with that culture, very satisfied in a way, easy jobs. You can go to the mine or the power plant and make as much as someone that gets a bachelor's degree. So... Growing up in Craig and the Yampa Valley, there wasn't a lot of exploring what your calling is, right? What your passion is. Because it became a collective passion. It became a collective identity. We are producing electricity for the rest of the country, even, you know, regionally at least. In our minds, the whole world gets our electricity. And we're the heroes. And this is hard work. This is sacrifice work. This is underground. This is hard. You are there every day no matter what because everyone's depending on you. So with that, that's the hardest part I see in this transition is that we have to create a new identity for our community. And we have to figure out what that common ground is and how we move forward with a way that gives us pride, creates economy, you know, economy that is fruitful. We have experiences. How can we keep our young people from leaving? It's, we have all of the same challenges that any rural community has, except for we have been dependent, like Wade said, on one industry. So we're, we're like, what? We have to do what? And that's a big challenge for everyone involved. And so there's a lot of denial going on with what's happening and a lot of repeating the same we are going to get through this, trying to figure how, how we focus on the positive and the opportunities um, and making that exciting in a way we can become a collective and unite around a new identity. Thanks, Jennifer. Talk to us about Hayden. Well, first and foremost, I think the important thing to understand is uh, how many people turned on their lights today, right? Hotel, whatever. 
So Colorado is still 70% coal-generated electricity. Most of your renewable energy is actually not even coming from Colorado. Some, but most, and most people don't even realize that most of the electricity in Colorado actually leaves the state. It doesn't actually hit your home. Uh, but regardless, that's, what, that's what's happening. And to take that a step further... When you talked about a place like Hayden, Jennifer was talking really well. You know, coal is a a culture. And when you have grown up for generations in a culture, and then somebody says, well, hi, you know, I'm here from the Office of Just Transition. (laughs) (laughs) Wade and I make fun of each other all the time, so it's okay. Uh, and, and and, and And it's, you're asked to do something that it's not about like a job training thing. I always, you know, people are like, oh, we're just going to re-educate people. You know, they're going to go to college again or whatever. And I'm like, how many people at the... Now, there's a bunch of people who start new businesses at the age of 55. Like that is like one of the like highest entrepreneurship ages. How many people at age 55 would decide to go back to college? Probably not many. So what we're asking people to do is take their identity, as Jennifer talked about, and just... Switch the light bulb. And that is really, really hard. And so in a place like Hayden, we had to circle around and talk about, when we were talking about our transition, we actually started talking about coal transition quite a few, quite a few years ago. And, you know, Excel Energy in 2018 made their promise that they were going to reach renewable energy 80% by 2030. That's actually increased now slightly uh, to 85%. But and Excel Energy is the majority owner of Hayden Station. So we had a conversation at the community level and said, hey, um, we understand these things, um, but the private industry has just made a decision because a renewable, uh, a kilowatt hour generated by renewable energy has just went like this on the diagram, and so supply and demand is switching. And when a company, the third largest utility, in the United States, Excel Energy, can buy a kilowatt hour for cheaper. That's a bottom line conversation for them, not a identity. Yet they're going to they're gonna bottom line that and go, this is the way we're going. And so as a community, we had to rally around what was going to be next in an, in an identity aspect. And so we connected with our community and said, you know, we understand that you've been doing this for decades, but where have you lived? Everybody obviously said, we've lived here. We said, well, what if we can work together to get a like job and you get to stay here? Because most of the time when coal, when transitions happen like this, people just move to the next coal mine. They'll move to Georgia. They'll move to wherever. And we said, well, what if we can all work together to keep you here? And so we focus around our people, and that's when our our conversation started with identity, and you know we'll get into some of the economics of it. But um, yeah, forty-five percent. Uh, Hayden, like our fire district, sixty-five percent dependent. We have one of the coal mines, twenty-mile coal mine as well. Uh, sixty-five. If if the power plant and the coal mine went away tomorrow, like in Delta, Delta's coal mine had a fire, shut down on a Friday for the fire, and on a Monday they went locked the gates and said, we're done. 200 people lost their jobs in three days. So we don't want that to happen. (laughs) 
but we know it could happen. So we're working very, very hard to work on those things. Thank you, Matthew. And you touched on this, but I'll just uh, dig a little deeper for both of you. Are there other misconceptions that people have about the transition from coal? And even more specifically, how do you combat those misconceptions and communicate more effectively to people that don't understand what's happening? I think the biggest misconception, whether we all like to admit our unpersonal bias or not, is that coal miners are, uh, and pe- folks who work in the coal industry are not very educated. People like to think that they're just, you know, maybe they got out of high school, maybe they didn't, they went and worked for the coal mine, they're really dirty, they're, you know, these, like, jobs. When um, a high schooler in Hayden leaves and goes to work at Hayden Station right now, they'll start at 85000 to 90000 a year. I didn't make that much money almost until I got to Hayden. <laughs> and I have all the student loan debt to prove it. Um, and they don't have that student loan debt. So, and they're working in these high effective machines that, I mean, that if anybody's ever been to a power plant and you get to see the big magnet that generates electricity or like the big, you know, boilers or things like that, these things take very, very highly educated people to run. And even in a coal mine, and by the way, I'm from Nuclear Natarita. Born and raised there. That's one of the communities that's already gone through, really. They've lost their power plant. They've lost their coal mine. Uh, if any of you were in the rural rock stars thing where I was and you saw the uranium drive-in sign, my family built that sign. Like, we erected it when I was 10. And my grandma lives about a block from there. And so I have went through a mining transition. My grandpa has a picture of me in a uranium mining, by the way. Um, I was like... Well, my son's out there. He's seven. But um, I was four, and I had a hard hat on. I was sleeping with a light like this. <laughs> and I still have that picture in my office, and I have a picture with my uncle and my dad. I put myself through my bachelor's degree uh, mining in Alaska, undergrad mining. And I remember that uh, my hands finally got clean from uh, working there for after about two years. <laughs> uh, but what that taught me was hard work, um, and you will never find harder workers than that. So I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. I have one more. I think it's a misconception that people think that coal miners don't care about the environment because we do, and we take care of it, and there's a lot of work that happens, not only from them personally donating to charities, but the mines and the power utilities, they donate money to all of our nonprofit organizations in the area. And most of them are tied to a ranching family in some way, and they're stewards to a lot of land. So I think that's a a big misconception, that just because we work in the coal mines, that we don't care about the environment, and we don't care about what our, our action is in that. So yeah, we need to have a transition, and we need to be mindful, but there has to be a nice segue that creates continuity with these communities as well. People like to talk about helping coal transition communities, and and helping here is used in air quotes for those listening. But with that help, often comes ideas about what help should do for that community. Talk about your approach to transition in your respective communities and how it may be different from other communities. Jennifer, you want to start us on that one? Sure. I think 
first of all, we had a, like, it's just a sense of shock, right, of, of this happening. And then collectively in a room, everyone denying and like, no, we got to make this stop. And then it, it's kind of turned into that old, wait, we're independent, we're pioneers. Most of our grandparents have homesteaded. Like, let's pull our bootstraps up and figure out how to do this for ourselves. So we've increased the communication and it's broadened our awareness of the whole community, of, as a valley, as a community. And I appreciate that in the beginning, Just Transition, their model for how they help the communities is very much, you tell us what you need, you tell us what your plan is, and then we'll try to support you. So we didn't get off the hook. We weren't, hey, we have a plan because we know what a community should do, or we have these examples and we want you to follow it. It's been left up to us to really curate how we want our future to look. And so that has its own challenge, right? Because we had a different identity we're trying to recreate and, and who's at the table with, with what we want to become. And so we're doing a lot of different work with um, state agencies looking at what our, our business and um, economic diversity could look like, what, what businesses are the right model, um, things like that on an economic development level, really trying to look as a, at a region because we know that we're going to be tied in, in particular in our case with Steamboat Springs, which has a healthy economy 45 miles um, east. So how do we look at as, as a whole region? And I think that's one of the biggest success stories I've seen coming out is how we're starting to become more aware of how we all work together and how our our region is interdependent and can be symbiotic. Great. How about you, Matthew? So when the Just Transition Office launched, they had their first meeting in Hayden. Uh, the governor was there. Uh, and then roughly two weeks later, we all went into lockdown. Uh, I think I was the last person to shake the governor's hand uh, for a year and a half. We were all sitting there, and everybody was kind of, uh, first case in Colorado. And, but one of the things at that meeting I remember somebody saying was, credit to Wade's office because they've actually stuck with this, is, you know, we know where we live, and we know what assets we have and everything else. So let us develop our plan. You just need to give us, we need help. We, we need financial help. And let us determine our own destiny, because with all due respect, that's what we've been doing for however many years. And very specifically, I would say that Hayden's approach starts with its people. I mean, it's people that we, we, we put them front and center, but not just from an identity standpoint, we've evaluated, you know, where are they working now and what kind of skill sets do they have? Because it's much easier to just transition somebody straight from being an electrician in a coal mine to possibly being an electrician with Central Electric or uh, moving into a manufacturing job where they have like skill sets and really all they have to do is learn how to run a different machine and they've been running machines for a long time. So secondarily, we've just, you know, my uh, doers and difference maker Jillian here who is with Jennifer's cohort, we crunch our data constantly. Uh, we, the six, the six industries we're targeting have been the most six successful industries in Route County since 1970, other than coal. 
And um, being in Route County, it's very difficult when you're in Hayden because there's Steamboat Springs, which has a thriving outdoor economy, skiing, you know, et cetera. Hayden's 25 miles to the west, 16 miles to the east of Craig, and we're in the middle. And the regional airport is in our boundary. When you fly in, you think you're flying into Steamboat. You're not. You're flying into Hayden, (laughs) just so you know. And uh, I'm very proud to live there. And that was the other part. We've created pride. And through that pride, we are advancing business industry. We're doing things, I think, that a lot of people thought that we may not be able to do. We're playing developer. We're building a 58-acre business park, which is only the first phase. It has, and we haven't broke ground yet, and we have three tenants signed up, ready to go. But we just had to center ourselves around what we had, what assets we have, and the help. Really, at the end of the day, I think the state still has a responsibility to ensure that their money is going to be spent wisely. We have to prove ourselves that we can do that. And I think we're doing that, especially in Northwest Colorado. Um, as Wade was talking about, we have the most coal jobs in the state combined. So uh, we've got a big task ahead of us, but that big task is not insurmountable. Um, so, Wade, I want to bring you in on this. As you think statewide, what are some of the commonalities your office is seeing throughout the state and perhaps what are some of the more, the more unique challenges to Moffitt and Route counties? I just spent the last two minutes trying not to cough while Matt was speaking. <laughs> I hope I get credit for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Northwest Colorado is kind of ground zero for us, but there are other communities, as you point out, that are also facing the transition in one form or another. So there are a number of other communities in the state that, face the transition in one form or another. We still have, I believe, four coal-burning power plants along the Front Range. I believe are burn, all are burning Wyoming coal. So in no mines on the Front Range, actually there's one um, that is reopened, which is an, an interesting kind of side story. So that's uh, uh, Larimer County has a plant. Brush has a plant. Uh, Car Springs still has a plant. The plant just south of here, the Drake plant, converted to gas a year ago or a year and a half ago and then closed. And then uh, the biggest coal-burning power plant in the state is in Pueblo. And half of, in dollar terms, half of the property taxes can be lost uh, when all of coal, if and when all of coal closes in the state, is in Pueblo from that one power plant, the Comanche plant. On the West Slope, um, we have, we've mentioned Nuclear Natarita, which was supposed to, the power plant was supposed to close in 2021 or 2022. Um, Tri-State showed up uh, with three months notice and said we're closing in 2019. So uh, they, they're already in the midst of it. Uh, Matthew also mentioned the mines along the North Fork of the Gunnison there, Delta, Peonia, Somerset, into Gunnison County, and then Route Rio Blanco and Moffat County. So those are the communities that we're, uh, that are using coal, burning coal, um, digging coal right now. And I would say, you know, the commonalities are the disbelief that I think in, uh, has already been mentioned, the concern, the pride in their community, and the sense that, you know, we're, 
We love this community. We take great pride in this community. We have a culture uh, that is important to us and a history that's important to us and an identity that's important to us. I've heard both my colleagues here talk about that. That that you see across the board. And, and that's exciting because I think that means that the communities aren't going to give up very easily. The, the other commonality is their lack of trust of Denver, which is a very common thing as, as well. And um, we understand that um, we're not exactly Denver, but we are state government. And um, we recognize that. And we know that what we have to do is earn trust. We can't come in and say, trust us. Uh, we have to show over time that we can be trusted and that we're there for the reasons we say we're there for, and we're sincere about that. I'm very glad that our office has nothing directly to do with the decisions of when and why and, and if the power plants and the mines close. Our job is all about if it happens, then what happens next? And, and how does that transition take place? And we're, it's important that we do that because the game is up if we're the folks who are also seen as, as, as and, and in fact, making some of the decisions that, that affect the communities. Let me tell you one difference between the communities. Is that okay? I'll tell you two differences. The first one is the kind of utility that's there. So I mentioned three, I mentioned a number of communities that have power plants in the state still. There are three different structures to the, commu- to the utilities that have those power plants, and they make all the difference in the world to how the communities are experiencing the transition. The first I'll talk about is municipally owned, uh, because that's the easiest one. That's here in Colorado Springs, and that's up in, uh, in Larimer County where the Platte River Power Authority runs. They don't pay property tax. They're community-owned. They're owned by the public entity, that, and they're local. So uh, they have, uh, when they close or when they transition, let's say we say close, but transition is potentially a big part of this to some other fuel, which in some ways is the best outcome we can think about. When they, uh, no property tax will be lost. So there's, there isn't that huge disruption in these communities. And they've, they both committed, Car Springs Utilities and Platte River Power Authority, both ut- committed to no job loss. And I think that's easier for them to do because they are, you know, they, they're like the public entity here in this county. They move folks to different jobs. They don't have to sell their houses and move to a different community. The second kind of, of utility is a, an investor-owned retail uh, utility like uh, Excel. Excel owns the Brush plant, owns the Pueblo plant, and owns the Hayden plant. And um, Excel um, lives in a highly regulated environment for reasons that are obvious about, you know, they have kind of a captive audience and a captive customer base. And they have been able to, have been required to submit to the Public Utilities Commission a plan for helping the communities transition. Excel, whether it was out of the, you know, they're required to do it, but also uh, I think they've thought through what their interest is. They've made a pretty significant commitment to their three areas, saying we will, we will commit the equivalent of six years' worth of property tax, either in the form of new property taxes, because we're going to make new investments, which is, again, the ideal, 
or uh, in the form of other support to help you with your transition. The third utility is, is Tri-State, which is a co-op. It's a nonprofit co-op that is a um, wholesaler, basically. It, it's a generation transmission company, and it sells to local uh, cooperatives. So I, I live in the uh, United Power Service area. They sell to my, I have Tri-State electricity. Now, another story, my United Power is, is trying to leave Tri-State that, that is a different business model. That is a different uh, reality financially in terms of having customers who actually can walk versus Excel that has customers that can't walk. And, um, and some other issues going on here, they have not made that level of commitment at all for Craig, and they did not make um, much of a commitment, frankly, to, to Nucla when they left. So part of what's, that was a long-winded explanation, I apologize for that, but part of what we're dealing with, first and foremost, is a question of how is the utility going to leave the community? And if it's going to leave as a part, or stay with a different fuel source, perhaps, or leave in a careful and, and, and partnering sort of way, we have one set of challenges which is still big, but a lot more manageable than if the utility is going to leave and leave a big hole and really make a very small commitment to fill that hole, which I think is what Craig right now is facing. So that's one important thing. I said there were two, but I'll just stop there. Let's, I want to make sure we have a chance to hear from you if you have questions. So there's a mic at the back of the room if you would like to make your way, if anybody has any questions. I have plenty more, but if there's anything from the audience, we'd be pleased to hear what you're wondering about. This is uh, both a comment and a question. Ken Weaver, uh, veteran 1963, worked uh, at State Public Health with uh, uranium mill regulation and was hearing the comments, and I'm so complimentary to how well you're working together on this transition. Uh, Compared to what has happened in some of the uranium industry, it just was not done this way. So just kind of quick congratulations. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. (laughs) By the way, Ken, I lived my first year of my life in Eurovan, Colorado, so. And for those who don't know, Eurovan is under a pile of dirt now, right? First big super fun EPA funded remediation site ever. So, yeah, Silverton, mm-hmm. your van. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Julian. Thank you. Um, and this can be through for all three of you, or if someone, uh, or if just one of you wants to wants to answer. Um, what role are you playing in supporting people working in coal? to learn and transition to new jobs. And Matt, I know you touched on this a little bit, but um, this is so impactful for everyone's life, um, economy, small business owners, um, and, and really being able to stay in community. And um, so I'm, I'm really wondering for the people with the boots on, their gr- on the ground, not from a, a top-down, here's the plan, but really the people who are working in these jobs, that now are not going to go back to college. And I imagine myself in that life waking up one day, not being able to do what I know um, and have collectively known historically within my family. And um, that must be daunting. And so I'm really interested to to hear um, how that's being supported. What really are those people going to do? 
to earn an income to support their families. Um, thank you. Okay, we could all answer that. The most concise answer, I think, is as a municipality who is working on the economic transition for Hayden, along with working in the valley as a whole, because we do work together as a whole, we are working to create jobs where that person doesn't feel they're taking their skill sets and they're really just inputting into a different job with the same skill sets, uh, hopefully with a like income, just 100%. And we're letting them dictate where they want to go. And then we're providing the mechanisms and the help. Uh, it, a lot of times that's actually not us helping. A lot of times that's getting them in touch with other entities other nonprofits and or the state or whatever. The Just Transition doesn't has a workforce program. And so oftentimes if they want to be an entrepreneur, we would be pointing them that way. And then just supporting them from a business standpoint, how to run a business, getting them some of those training, getting them to the two community colleges, getting them to some of those just basic job training skills so that they can be successful. The, the legislation that created our office, um, a full half of our obligation is to those specific workers, the, the power plant workers, the miners, and the uh, supply chain folks. And um, that is a daunting task. You laid it out very well. It's a little easier. It's not easier work necessarily, but it's a little easier to kind of figure out how a community makes an investment here or investment there and starts to replace what's being lost in terms of property tax or you know, you know, what does a miner do? What does a miner's family do? Um, we, again, I used the word humble earlier. We, we're trying to be very humble in how we go about this. You're right. It cannot be a top-down. It cannot be, oh, well, you just go work in the solar industry or, you know, it's kind of let them eat cake sort of response. Um, what we're trying to do is think about, first of all, the family entirely, the not just the miner but the spouse, and trying to think about how, to center as diverse a program of supports around what their needs would be. And here we're lucky in the sense that we've got a few years. So we want to get ahead of the curve. You know, a lot of times these programs for workers wait until the, the damage is done, wait until the job has been lost, and then they run in and try to, you know, fix things somehow. Um, we want to try to get ahead of that with the Navigator program, and uh, sit with the family, you know, individually with the workers and their families. And what do you want to do with your future? What kind of, you know, do some financial planning with them. Think about what, the, what they might want to do. We, we, just, we just completed a very extensive survey. Uh, most of the miners and utility workers in the valley, in the Yampa Valley, want to stay there. That's really good news, and that's really good to know. Many of them want to start their own business, not majority, but a, a surprising number have this entrepreneurial spirit. They want to start their own jobs so, or start their own business. So how do we, hey, you know, that's some of the training we should try to make sure is available for them. How do you start a business? How do you make payroll? How do you, you're a small business owner, you know, you know all these things. That, you know, how do, you, how, how do we help them get those sorts, of, those sorts of skills and importantly to do it before they lose the other job so that there's not, you know, there's less of a, 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 a transition from them. But it's going to be very traumatic like uh, like these folks are saying, it's part of the identity of of the community and certainly of these workers. 
they're very proud of what they've done and they should be. And all of that is, is, is a difficult transition. And, and um, you know, we're going to try to do what we can, but understand, you know, there's only so much we can do because it's not our job. It's their job to kind of figure out their future. And we'll, we'll do everything we can to help them succeed at that. Great. Anybody else um, from the audience? Oh, good. We've got someone right at the mic. Go for it. Thank you all for your very important and what I see to be extremely innovative work. And I've learned so much from the three of you over the past year with the Cool at Sunset podcast, which I love, and also at our um, board retreat last year. I feel as if some of the success that you've seen so far is because of the willingness on behalf of the helpers to listen to the stories. And I wonder if you also feel as if that's true. And if so, if you could comment on that. I'll, yeah, I'll I, leave, I'll leave I mean, the room if you want me listen. to. Then you can tell. <laughs> no. I mean, I think telling the story and listening to the story is, is the key, right? And how we create our communities and if we would have been doing that 50 years ago, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. And that's kind of what I keep coming back to is what are we learning from this? What are we, we trying to move forward with stronger communities that are healthier, that are happier, that people do have the ability to come to their full potential? Um, so listening to the stories is, is huge. It, it helps validate people's concerns, their identities, and, and their family legacy, and what they've been raised to believe as, as their life's work. So as much as we can listen to those stories and absorb and identify and uh, empathize and then find common ways to believe in a positive future, that's how we're going to get through this. We're all here at a conference with three words on it. I was just noticing here, you know elevate, connect, and lead. And I think that is our sole responsibility is to elevate the people that we have in our communities, can, you know, help them provide connections to which they chart their own futures with story and other things. And then uh, it's our job to lead. And this is where we have to step in because uh, there's plenty of people, I can tell you, that would probably just be like, yeah, well, you know, sorry, you shouldn't have been in that industry. And... This is a different model, as Wade's talked about. So it's our job to lead that effort. The more that folks like you hear this story, is the more times that uh, we can change people's minds around that. So thank you. Well, we are sadly out of time. And I just want to thank KRCC again for hosting. Jeff, thank you for the tour. Um, we are so grateful to be in this space uh, and proud that we had the opportunity to support this building too. This is a Betcher Foundation grantee as well. And so it's just wonderful to see what's happening here and then to have a little piece to do this opportunity together. So I just want to thank the panelists. Let's give them a, a great round of applause for their dedication and their leadership and they continue. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. 
With an 85-plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.